In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back. We released an episode last week that we had actually recorded before the holidays, and then now we're back post-holidays recording the second part of this two-party episode. Yeah, we've been really cruel making everyone out there wait for weeks to find out. I mean, I I imagine someone has Googled. (laughs) No, here's the good news. We released it last week, and so we recorded it a long time ago, but people haven't been waiting. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. No wonder. I thought, okay, I got the notification that it published. Yes. And I was like, I know that. (laughs) (laughs) you're like i knew that weeks ago oh perfect good yeah no i i was like we can't release part one and then wait a few weeks and release part two so that's kind uh, yeah so here we are with part two so if you are unlike us and it's only been a week since we talked about the law and order episode we uh, matt recapped episodes I don't even know, 1516, which was a two-part called The Torrents of Greed? Yeah, I believe it was 1516. So uh, do you have any any items, any business to discuss before we start in? Um, I have a couple of things. I have a recommendation, and it's a... It- it's a recommendation much in the vein of... <laughs> you know when you listen to My Favorite Murder, like, I don't know, two two seasons in or, you know... 40 episodes in and Karen starts saying things like, okay, stop recommending things like law and order to us because yes, we've seen it. (laughs) Yes. If it's British and procedural, I have seen it. Right. Right. So it's much in the vein of that, but it's something I'm new to watching. And I just, I watched with Davey, the documentary series on HBO, the jinx. Oh, I don't think I've heard of that. Oh my God. It's one of those very iconic true crime stories that has been, recommended a million times to me over the years and i started it once before the first episode it's like i don't know eight four or five maybe long but the first episode it just didn't capture my attention within the first 15 minutes and Uh i think i skipped to something else because i thought it wasn't i don't know i don't know what i thought i thought it was going to be a different type of crime it is sincerely one of the most compelling documentary series i've ever seen about a true crime and oh, interesting. Um, I if you are going to watch it and you don't already know how how it's anything about the case, it's about Robert Durst. If you, I don't know <laughs> not to be confused with uh Fred Durst. Fred Durst of Limp Biscuit. It's about That's Robert Durst and uh hot dog water and <laughs> red chocolate starfish and the hot dog flavored water. There you go. I'm glad you knew the reference. What's who is he? He is a the the short answer is he's a man who has been connected to multiple people who have mysteriously died and somehow for a long time escaped any sort of um, suspicion. suspicion. Oh. So it's really cool. Is he like like an insurance scam kind of guy? No, it's very true crime, very murdery, very good. Well, I meant more like taking out a life insurance policy and killing somebody kind of thing. Not exactly. Okay. It's it's really good. good. And you have to watch it all the way through and do not look up anything about it first because it will totally spoil it for you. Is it scary? Because right now I, my partner is gone for like five or six weeks. And so I don't want to watch scary things by myself at night. (laughs) (laughs) It's not scary. Like, you know, jump scary. They don't show graphic shocking things without any sort of warning, but it is, uh, it's chilling. It's a little chilling. Okay, great. I think you'll really like it. Um, Speaking of scary... Oh, go ahead. Yes. No, 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 go ahead. We also... I haven't finished it yet because I got to a certain episode and I was like, wait, I have to watch this with Davey. I can't watch this alone because it's too good. (laughs) (laughs) It's finally... I'm getting around to the... Also on HBO, the documentary series um, about the Golden State Killer based on Michelle McNamara's book, The I'll Be Gone in the Dark. Yes, yes. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it goes without saying how good it is because... We've, we've heard a lot about it, and from watching My Favorite Murder, I think they did like a little um, preview of it back when it first came out, mm-hmm. and just hearing Patton Oswalt's, it's just so beautiful. About, it's so interesting. It's so much about Michelle McNamara and what she oh. did and what she meant to 
not only the true crime community, but her own community of people. Um, yeah. It's really beautiful. It's very emotional. I got to episode four, I think, of five of them. And I had uh-huh. to, I was sobbing, 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 sobbing. So I had to stop. And that's why I restarted it with Davey. So I haven't finished it, but it is spectacular too. That's that's a sad one. That is more graphic. That one I would wait. <laughs> okay. Okay. I forget what I was going to say. Other than, oh, I know what I was going to say. I've been listening to a podcast called Let's Not Meet, which I don't know if you've ever listened to. I've been listening to a lot of podcasts recently because I I don't know. There's nothing on TV that's gripping me at the moment. Mm-hmm. And so I've been playing a lot of computer games, video games, and listening to podcasts. I think you told me about it. It's it's good. It's people, it's not people telling their own stories, but it's like, I wrote a story and sent it into you and you're reading it as part of your podcast. And essentially every story is like this really, it's called a true horror podcast. It's basically people telling these stories of these like horrific interactions or experiences that they've had. And then it ends with like, so person who tried to like pull a knife on me as I got into my car at the grocery store, let's not meet again or let's Uh. not meet. And the first story is, uh, well, maybe I won't spoil it, but the first story was pretty gripping. I would say it's entertaining enough for me to like keep going. There are, uh, can I be critical? I can be critical of another podcast. There are, there are definitely stories that vary in quality. Like some of them are like, oh, and this car followed me for three blocks. So let's never meet. And like, (laughs) fine. Like I'm, I get that that was probably a scary experience for you. It's not a gripping story. And so, uh, there are definitely ones where I, where you can tell like somebody's trying to be a really gripping writer and they're just not, or they're like the story is being like really over dramatized, but then there are some that are like really, really good. So I would say it, it fluctuates in how interesting the story is, not in the quality of the podcast. Okay. And the, the stories are all like listener submitted, correct? Um, I believe so. I know that it, I know that there's a subreddit called let's not meet. Mm-hmm. And I think that it predated the podcast like i think somebody started a podcast about the stories that were on that reddit got it so they're maybe pulled from there some of them yeah that's kind of the impression i get i could be wrong in any event then you know that's not really critical of the podcasters it's critical of the their uh, selections yes selection exactly but i guess that means that there's a good variety of types of stories for people um you know, maybe the ones yeah. that aren't as compelling to you or like, you know, the bread and butter for someone who doesn't love maybe. what we love. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. And then the other thing that I just wanted to talk about because it was a fun 90s throwback, which is sort of the theme of this podcast, is somebody posted a link about how Vianetta, oh. the, the dessert from the 90s, is coming back. No. Yes. Oh, my Do you remember God. Vianetta and all the commercials for it? Vianetta made me feel like we were... The the upper the crust. fanciest the <laughs> fanciest I think I had it once Vianetta. and I don't think it's I don't think uh, it's good it is good is it good oh my god it's like ice cream and like you thin you chocolate. had a lot of feelings you had a lot of feelings right there Vianetta made me when we had like one of those out it was like ooh Vianetta yeah. what's the occasion <laughs> <laughs> as a young person I felt like that was the pinnacle of adulthood <laughs> we're oh having god. I I did I'm underdressed. And we were having <laughs> Vianetta. <laughs> Let me go put on a, a button-up shirt. Do you guys have Vianetta? Do you have a, a place where, like, you have suit coats that we could just use for the day? <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so that oh, just man. cracked me up because it's coming back. Thank goodness. Uh, anything else you want to talk about before we get into the crime? No, I am ready. I'm very interested to see. You know, okay. As I've said, I'm not as familiar with these types of crimes, so I'm curious to see what if I even know it. Yeah, I think you'll definitely know it. Okay. So here's okay. So Matt and I had a little a business meeting via text the other day, mm-hmm. and after I was researching the crimes that inspired this episode, there are actually two kind of crime stories that they the Law and Order writers put together to create this story, both sort of about organized crime. And so I picked one of them to report on. And if we get a future episode that is about true crime or about organized crime that maybe isn't really inspired by a specific thing, I'll cover the the second crime at that time. Or maybe we'll just do a bonus episode at some point that is about that crime. Yeah, that'd be cute. 
Uh, if we ever like get a Patreon started or something, we could do a, a Patreon episode for the second crime. Ooh, we should probably do that. Probably. All right. So, uh, my sources for this story came from a number of places. Uh, of course, the Law and Order Wiki and Wikipedia both had really great kind of. Uh, well, Law and Order Wiki told me the crime it was inspired by. Wikipedia kind of gave me a good rundown. Um, FBI.gov, the mob, the mobmuseum.org, crimemuseum.org, Encyclopedia Britannica, which <laughs> I felt like I laughed so hard. I felt like I was on Alta Vista or something when I was reading it. <laughs> you had to have been. Or a Netscape Navigator. <laughs> um, History.com. There's a, a Mafia Wiki. Hmm. Biography.com, a 1992 New York Times article by Ralph Blumenthal, and PBS.org are all sources for this uh, story. I love PBS. I do, too. I, I mean, Laura Linney. And viewers like you. Oh, I love and Laura Linney. Like you. Gosh, I love Laura Linney. <laughs> Except for the, the uh, Tales of the City. Okay, <laughs> so. Oh, Matt, I have what I think is possibly the best story I've ever had to tell on a podcast, but I think it's more appropriate for our other podcast. So I'm going to save it for that one. Okay. And so if you are a listener who doesn't listen to our other podcast, Cool Story, uh, which is about Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time fantasy series, uh, go check that out. It's also, it's very similar to this podcast as far as like tone and structure. It's just a different subject matter. And uh, there's an Amazon TV series coming out about it next year. Oh, I can't wait. It looks and so, so good. It looks so good. And so uh, I'm going to save the story for that podcast uh, because I think it's, it's, I, I literally was like almost crying. I was laughing so hard. So, oh, anyway, just a little I teaser. Can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this the the Torrents of Greed episodes from Law and Order were inspired by two different sort of stories of organized crime. One of them being the story of Jimmy Hoffa, which oh. is probably a name that you recognize, right. even if you don't necessarily know his whole story, right? Yeah, I just know that he's like never, but they never found his body, right? Yes, isn't that the whole thing about him? Yes, that's all I know about him. <laughs> okay, great. So I thought I was I thought this was such an interesting kind of world of true crime that I, much like what we talked about in the episode, it's not something that I've necessarily spent a lot of time reading about or watching documentaries or videos about. And so it was really actually very interesting to me to get involved in this one. Okay. So Jimmy Hoffa was born February 14th, 1913, which blows my mind how long ago that was because I, I like... the idea that I know the name Jimmy Hoffa, like kind of off the tip of my tongue and we're able to say like, oh, the disappearance from somebody who was born 107 years ago is just kind of mind blowing to me. That is mind blowing to me. And by the way, something else that's mind blowing to me is a friend of mine posted today wishing their grandmother a hundred and second birthday today. <laughs> oh my God. She was born in 1918. It's her 102nd birthday. That is incredible. Wow. Good for you, girl. I looked at that post, and before I even got to fact check it myself, the person who posted it wrote, yes, I wrote 102nd. <laughs> <laughs> not, not like accidentally 90 seconds. Or yeah, something. I was That's like, impressive. get it, girl. 102nd yeah. birthday. Okay, Jimmy Hoffa was born in a city with which has kind of one of my favorite naming conventions. He was born in Brazil, Indiana. And I just love that. Like, I love, there's something hilariously absurd to me about the names of some of the cities in the United States where, you know, people got to Texas and they were like, you know what, this reminds me of Paris. <laughs> Like <laughs> I love when that happens. I love I when love that happens. It. Uh, like the fact that there is an area of Indiana that somebody looked at and said, "You know what? Brazil." <laughs> <laughs> Come to Brazil. Come to Brazil. <laughs> okay. So he was born in Brazil, Indiana in 1913, but his family moved when he was pretty young to Detroit, which is um, in Michigan, where he grew up for kind of the, the majority of his life. Uh, Do you like how I had to tell you that Detroit was in Michigan? Yeah, I did. You Michigan, Michigan. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's near is the that Riviera, the... right? <laughs> Michigan is the one that looks like a mitten, right? I don't know. I think okay. that's... Uh... Is that Minnesota? No, that's got to be Michigan because it's the, by okay. the lakes, right? It's got to be Michigan. Bef- <laughs> the before it does look you... like a mitten. 
Okay, good. Before you uh, criticize me for not knowing that, I am good at a lot of things, but not geography. Oh, me neither. So this is great. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So Jimmy Hoffa ended up leaving school at the age of 14 and started working in manual labor jobs. And through that is how he got connected to labor unions. So he was working at a grocery store, and the, he and the other workers at the grocery store felt that the the wages that they were being paid, their working conditions, were not satisfactory. They weren't up to par. They weren't fair. And so he got involved in labor unions and labor union organizing as a way to fight for the rights of kind of uh, blue, blue-collar workers, mm-hmm. I would say. And... Uh, He eventually became the president of the International Brother of Teamsters from 1957 to 1971. And the Teamsters was, and I think is still one of the biggest unions in the United States. They do primarily represent blue-collar work. And Hoffa kind of made a name for himself uh, through his union organizing and leadership with the Teamsters. And if you actually read different articles about his life, uh, which I'm not going to focus on as much, there are a lot of people who argue that um, he did a lot of positive work for uh, folks in that kind of uh, employment. So okay. some people are like, yeah, he was involved in organized crime. And also the work he did really benefited a lot of people who do that kind of work. Do Can I ask if you know, like what exactly the Teamsters are? Like, I've heard that term a lot. And I still hear that uh-huh. term a lot just in the line of work I do through insurance and stuff. And uh-huh. I'm just wondering what is a team? <laughs> what does that mean? What is a Teamster? It's just like it's an organization? Just, yeah, it's just the name of the union. So there's like... um United Farm Workers is another really big union that represents obviously a lot of farm okay. workers and Teamsters. Uh, United Auto Workers. Yeah, and Teamsters is just one of them. And they, I think, um, they they were pretty diverse uh, in the types of work that they represented. Okay, uh, but it seems to have kind of like maybe started or have more of a strong representation of of blue collar work. Okay, interesting. Yeah. So, okay, so he became president of the Teamsters, and the Teamsters organization, in large part, in large part through his organizing and the leadership of others in the union, he helped to grow the union to become the largest union in the United States, which reached a membership of over 2.3 million members. So a pretty big representation of workers. That's massive. Yeah. And... Obviously, labor unions have historically and contemporarily been really important for protecting the rights of workers, but Hoffa pretty quickly became involved in organized crime, pretty much from what I could tell the beginning of his work with the Teamsters, although I, what I'll say, I should have, I feel like I should have done a little disclaimer at the beginning of this, which is all of this is alleged because <laughs> I don't want anybody showing up to my door at night. <laughs> Nobody does really. I, I, I sometimes like when, um, DoorDash shows up at my door at night. <laughs> That's fine. That's but don't it. ring my, I mean, you can ring my bell. Don't stand there. Just leave the food. You can ring my bell. Ring my bell. My ding dong. Ring, ring my bell. <laughs> Sorry. So, okay, so he became part of organized crime pretty quickly in his involvement with the Teamsters. And part of this that I read in a few different articles, but I honestly had a really hard time getting any sort of explanation for, is that um, uh, trucking was a big part of the Teamsters union representation. And trucking back then, slash, I don't know, maybe today, were heavily controlled by elements of organized crime and again, I, I couldn't find like a few sentences that said trucking is prime for organized crime because X, Y, Z. So my best guess is because of the ability to control the distribution of goods. That makes and sense. The, and the ability to maybe traffic things and move goods around, whatever, is kind of my best guess, but I'm not 100% sure of that. Yeah, I'm looking right now and uh, to see if I could find anything more on that while uh-huh. you were just describing that. <laughs> and I just quickly am reading through the Teamsters Wikipedia page. Um, uh-huh. And just one th- one note I read here um, was that they also were um, controlling the railroads initially, which oh. would also support that too. Yes. Um, yeah, and yeah, it yeah. also says that um, 
they were established in like 1903 it looks like and uh-huh. um during who was this person shay shay coulet <laughs> no cornelius shay not exactly okay <laughs> the union's first president um uh cornelius shay ever since they were nominated they were it says quote during shay's presidency the entire teamsters union was notoriously corrupt and that oh, was the first president in 1903 so uh okay all right so okay so hoffa got involved in labor unions and he seems to have had an interest in like leadership or um, maybe management or whatever, because he he pretty quickly decided to run for president of the Teamsters Union. Ambitious. And I know. And from what I understand, his campaign to become union president uh, was pretty much corrupt from the beginning. Uh, because in 1955, so again, he was president from 57 to 71, Okay, so he met in 1955. He met with uh, a member of organized crime named Johnny Dio, D-I-O, and together they created. And again, this is something that I I don't fully understand the workings of, but he created essentially fake local unions to boost his delegate totals and like applied for charters. So it was sort of like, oh. I guess, a way to make it look like he locally represented more people than he did. And so it was a way to sort of like boost his profile, maybe boost to the votes that he was getting. So it, it was uh, a way for him to kind of get sh- uh, pushed into the presidency, maybe undeservedly or, or sooner than he should have, perhaps. Wow, I'm so shocked that there was a like political campaign that was like tam- tampered with and corrupt. I don't. I, yeah. I this is troubling to me. Do you think that this kind of thing still goes on? No comment. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, he, there were a number of things that sort of like tipped off the FBI that the labor unions might be involved in organized crime, and so they put together a committee called the McClellan Committee that was designed to study the extent, uh, study and investigate the extent of organized crime or other uh, improper labor management practices in unions. And it was led by Robert F. Kennedy, who you might know better as Bobby Kennedy, Mm -hmm. who was actually JFK's little brother. So the McClellan Commission conducted, this is one of those moments where I got an article that like listed numbers of things. And again, I don't know if this is a lot or not very much or kind of on par, but they conducted 253 separate investigations, uh, subpoenaed 8,000 witnesses for part of the investigation. They held 270 days of hearings, took testimony from over 1,500 witnesses, uh, a large portion of which uh, invoked the Fifth Amendment mm-hmm. to not incriminate themselves when they were giving testimony. Mm-hmm. And they compiled over 150,000 pages of testimony as part of this investigation. So from my non-legal expertise, it looks like a pretty big investigation to me. I think it's like, you know, kind of small. It <laughs> <laughs> seems pretty expansive, actually. So in March of 1957, Hoffa was arrested for trying to bribe an aide to the um, McClellan Commission. So the people who were investigating the corruption, Hoffa was arrested for trying to bribe somebody involved in that investigation, which doesn't sound like the right choice to me. But (laughs) hey, (laughs) I mean, it doesn't sound like a smart choice if you're trying to be under the radar exactly if you're trying to be discreet and and you know vet the right people to be uh (laughs) that might bribe be on your side (laughs) that might not be the one i would go for (laughs) yeah sounds like he miscalculated uh (laughs) because he was arrested for that and he denied the charges and he was acquitted of them but the per the perception of the intent to manipulate the investigation resulted in additional investigations and more arrests over the following weeks and months so his attempt to manipulate that kind of backfired. Although he was indicted several times in federal and state courts based on evidence that the committee or sorry, the commission uncovered, uh, he was never convicted of any of those charges. So he uh, was just like Teflon and nothing stuck to him. Uh, Prosecutors and others accused Hoffa of jury tampering in 
kind of various parts of these different arrests and investigations in order to, you know, prevent his conviction. But again, those allegations of jury tampering, witness intimidation, were never able to be proven in a court of law. Of course. Right. When JFK was elected president in 1960, he appointed Bobby Kennedy, his brother, his little brother, as attorney general, which gave uh, Bobby Kennedy the kind of greater power to investigate and prosecute Hoffa. And some people felt like this was due to some kind of personal vendetta against Hoffa. Um, And some people actually called his committee of investigators and prosecutors the, quote, get Hoffa squad. (laughs) Uh, That's that's really, like, lame. The (laughs) get Hoffa squad? That's it? Yeah. What else? What, What would be a better, what's a cleverer name for that? Okay. Hot hot for Hoffa. Hot for Hoffa. Uh, <laughs> Hoffa, I barely know her. Oh my God. Get off of Hoffa. Off, uh, off, off with Hoffa. Off with Hoffa. Hoffa with their heads. Hoffa the time I don't even know what's happening. That's not a good one. I'm just doing bad puns with his name now. Okay. okay. <laughs> so in... His 1962 conspiracy trial, because again, there were lots of arrests, lots of, uh, you know, allegations, etc. One of those was a conspiracy trial in 1962 in Nashville. Hoffa attempted to bribe a grand juror. And in May of 1963, he was uh, indicted for that attempt to bribe a grand juror. He was indicted for jury tampering, and he... Uh, received an eight-year prison sentence and a $10,000 fine. Can he get a new bag? Like, bribery isn't your thing, clearly. It's clearly not working out well for him. You're not so, great at it. You're not great at <laughs> Although, it. Although, maybe this is just two failed attempts of, like, a bunch? I don't know. Can you take a course, like a community I, college course in bribery or something? Like, you know, I was going to say, <laughs> it seems like he's bad at bribery, but I suppose there, you know, the whole intent behind it is we don't know about it. And so maybe there are lots of times where it did work. Well, I, I'm sorry. The success rate for bribery in my book needs to be 100%. <laughs> Otherwise, get out of the game. You get, you get one slap on the wrist early on. You know, when you're shadowing someone. And then when yeah. you're bribing on your own, when you're in the bribery game, like, on your own. It's got to be 100% or game. not. Yeah. You can't just half-ass it. This is bribery, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so he was indicted for jury tampering, but he attempted to appeal that sentence. And while he was on bail, there was a second trial that convicted him of conspiracy and three counts of mail and wire fraud. So essentially, from the from what I was able to glean, he was improperly using the Teamsters pension fund. So people's retirement fund, they were using that to make bribes, make investments, and apparently a good amount of that was used to make loans to hotels in Las Vegas, which when I read that, I was like, oh yeah, I feel like I have heard like rumors or whatever of like Las Vegas being involved in organized crime or or, or vice versa anyway. And so I was like, that kind of that makes sense. That yeah. kind of checks out. So over the next three years, Hoffa attempted to appeal his convictions, but all of them were unsuccessful, and so he began serving a 13-year prison sentence on March 7th of 1967. While in prison, he resigned as Teamster president. And I just loved that moment because I was like, wait, he wasn't, like, kicked out of being president while (laughs) all of these trials and convictions were happening? Like, he chose to resign while in prison. You know, I'm actually surprised he resigned while he was in prison because Honestly, a lot I of people too. go away and they just lead their organizations from in prison and then they have an easier time doing it because they're, mm. you know, trying to be they're like, already oh, there. I'm not even there. And you think that gets yeah. uh, blamed on the organization. It's like, well, I'm not there. I wasn't responsible for yeah. any of the other stuff too. So mm, I want, I'm actually kind of, like, kind of surprised. <laughs> kind of like an arrested development. So of his 13 year prison sentence, how many years do you think he served? Um, 13 years. This was the 60s, right? Uh, 67. Yeah. Okay. Um, four? Five. Oh, okay. (laughs) So a little (laughs) under half. And why, you might ask? Well, let me tell you. Because President, President, 
because President Richard Nixon decided to commute his sentence and had him released from prison. And when he was released from prison, he was awarded a $1.75 million termination benefit from the Teamsters retirement plan. (laughs) And my note is just, what the fuck? Like, number one, Nixon. Right. (laughs) What the fuck? Number two... If this person is convicted of improperly using the pension fund of your union members, why are you giving him a termination benefit? Like, that's the kind of thing that should just, like, disqualify you from that kind of shit, you know? Yeah, like, sorry, you are not allowed to have this anymore, and I don't care. It doesn't matter that you think you were going to get it. You don't get get it just because you did the wrong thing for a long time. Exactly. You were really shitty for a long time, so we're, we have to, we're forced to give you a reward. Also, quick question. Do you think that, you know, post-conviction of the improper use of u- union resources and funds, do you think that he should be allowed to be involved in labor organizing again? Of course not. Well, turns out uh, he... <laughs> Part of his commutation of sentence from Nixon, Nixon stipulated that he would have him released from prison, but that he couldn't be involved in union work until 1980. So, you know, just like a couple years and then you can do it again. No, just, you know, just wait a little bit. Think about what you did. The judgment of people. I just don't understand sometimes. Okay. Hoffa, however, said that he had never agreed to... Uh, to that term. And so by 1973, he was already trying to win back the presidency of the Teamsters, and he was suing to get back his right to do union work. He was suing the, I guess, federal government to get back his right to do union work. Find another trade. Find another job. Take up knitting. Knitting. Knit those big cable knit uh, blankets you were talking about. Knit those big blankets. Start an Etsy store, Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah, get smart. You gotta gotta get smart about this because you just sell one of those blankets and you have made enough money for for like the next two weeks. Exactly. Just sell one. So he, he did lose the battle, the legal battles to get involved in union organizing. Um... And he was actually facing a lot of resistance from within the union. They were like, no, we're good. Like, goodbye. And uh, part of that was actually resistance from members of the mafia because they were like, hey, shit dick, like you (laughs) got arrested and convicted and have like a literal bullseye on your forehead. Why would we want to put you in a highly visible position? Like it just, it was a really bad decision on his part which will turn out to not do not be uh, a good decision for him ultimately <laughs> so while he was trying to regain uh leadership of the union he contacted contacted a man named anthony provenzano mm-hmm. p-r-o-v-e-n-z-a-n-o provenzano that's one of the ones i'm i feel more confident with there are a number of Italian names in this story that I might need your help with, as I as I mentioned. I'll do my best. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so uh, Provenzano was a local leader in the Teamsters, and he was also a what's called capo regime, or a capo, which is, I think, Italian for captain. So he was kind of a, a leader both in the local Teamsters union, and he was also not like high, high, high up in the mafia, but he was a, a leader within the mafia as well. Mm-hmm. So Provenzano, if you go and read any articles about him, he is often referred to what is called a, a made man, M-A-D-E, not M-A-I-D. Okay. And a made man is a... Uh, kind of a fully initiated member of the mafia. And I'm going to read this quote from, I think this is from Wikipedia. I just thought this was really interesting. So to become made, a member of the mafia, an associate must first be uh, Italian or of Italian descent and be sponsored by another made man. And an inductee into the mafia will take an oath of omerta, O-M-E-R-T-A with kind of a backwards uh, accent mark. Uh Not a tilde, but like an accent mark. Okay. uh, Which is apparently the Mafia Code of Silence and Honor. Hmm. What's it called again? Omerta. O-M-E-R-T-A. Okay. And after the induction ceremony, they become, quote, a made man, and they hold the rank of soldier. 
And in the mafia hierarchy, made men are the only ones who can kind of like rise up through the ranks of the mafia. And the the rankings at the lowest level is soldier. Then there's capo regime, which is sort of the captain. And then there's another word that I had to like tell Google to play it for me like 15 times because it's spelled C-O-N-S-I-G-L-I-E-R-E. And it is pronounced consigliere. Consigliere. Yeah. I wrote it out for, for myself phonetically. <laughs> I would have never so gotten soldier, that. <laughs> so soldier, capo regime, con, consigliere, underboss, and boss is kind of the, the hierarchy. Hmm. So Provenzano, Hoffa reached out to him saying, like, I, need, I want help to get back into union organizing, of course, being involved in organized crime, et cetera, et cetera. And apparently this was a very bad decision because while they – while while Hoffa was in jail, Provenzano was apparently also in jail. I'm unclear if they were in the same jail, uh, but apparently they had like a little tiff while they incar- while they were incarcerated. So when Hoffa reached out to Provenzano and asked him for his help, what do you think his response was? Um, I'm sorry, wrong number. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> It was perhaps a little harsher than that. So he did say no, but he also told Hoffa, I am going to pull out your guts and kidnap your grandchildren. In which order? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, if somebody has that strong of a reaction to you, wouldn't you have some vague sense of that ahead of time? Um, You know, like you would think so. You think you'd, you know, (laughs) I always... You try to read the room a little right, bit. Right, honestly. I'm not going to cold like call if, somebody. But then again, this is the guy who was caught for bribery at least two different times. He's clearly not uh, fair. like the most... He's not a great judge of character, it seems. Yeah, he doesn't know how to like read body language or actual language. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, just because I think if, if there were somebody out there who would say to me, I'm going to pull out your guts and kidnap your grandchildren, I feel like I that's probably not the person I would go to for help. But maybe, I don't know, maybe he felt over a barrel. Maybe it was the only person. I don't really know. Let's but it not was not meet. a good choice. Let's not meet. That's a Let's good one for that meet. one. You're going to pull out my guts <laughs> and kill my grandchildren? Let's not meet. Um, by the way. Provenzano, uh, so he he's a member, uh, he's a, a leader in the union. Um, just coincidentally, two members of the union who were kind of opposed to Provenzano just happened to turn up murdered, and um, other people who spoke against him were assaulted. So doesn't mm. necessarily seem like the uh, most on the up and up kind of guy. Yeah. Connect the dots. Yeah. So... Okay, so we've got this conflict between Hoffa and Provenzano, and now we're introducing another person named Gia Colone? Yeah, Gia Colone, I'd say. Gia Colone. Or Gia Colone. Gia Colone or Gia Colone? Gia Colone. Okay, let's do Gia Colone, because that sounds fun. Okay. So we're we're introducing two men named Anthony or Tony and his brother Vito Gia Colone. Oh, these names all just... Are perfect. This is really the air. I grew up in a very Italian neighborhood. I know, and this is like all the people Everybody. I went to school with. Just wait. It, there's more. It like this. I. F- it's incredible. There are some phenomenal names in this story. So, uh, Vito Giacolone and his brother uh, Tony or Anthony, and allegedly they were kind of like kingpins of the mafia in Detroit, and according to the FBI. They were kind of aware of or became involved in this conflict between Hoffa and uh, Provenzano. And they apparently, through some machinations, became sort of like in the middle of it and were sort of like positioning themselves as maybe like mediators between Hoffa and Provenzano. Okay. But Hoffa's son, um, who I think is also named Jimmy, by the way. uh, Yes, he was James Hoffa, so... James Jimmy, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, if he wants. <laughs> Remind me about his son at the end of this. Okay. So Hoffa's son said that that was not correct. That the Gia Colones were not somebody who were were not people who were trying to like mediate this situation. His recollection is that every time the Gia Colones came around, uh, his dad Jimmy Hoffa was like really kind of like anxious and on edge. So on July thirtieth, nineteen seventy five. Hoffa was set to meet with Provenzano 
and Gia Colone at 2 p.m. at the Macus, M-A-C-H-U-S, Red Fox Restaurant, in which is in a Detroit suburb, uh, which was also the location of Hoffa's son wedding reception, Hoffa's son's wedding reception. Mm-hmm. So they were set to meet there at 2 o'clock. Uh, presumably Hoffa was trying to get support for his, again, Re-entry, presidential yeah. dreams. So between 2.15 and 2.30 p.m., Hoffa called his wife. So again, this is 75, no cell phones. He calls from a payphone in front of a hardware store in the parking lot of the Marcus Red Fox restaurant and calls his wife to complain that Gia Colone and Provenzano hadn't shown up. And so he was calling her just A, to kind of complain, and also B, to be like, did they call home or whatever? Like, did we get our wires crossed? And she said she hadn't heard from anyone um, that, you know, she had heard nothing about plans being changed. And so he's like, okay, great. I'm going to come home. I'll be there at four. And we're going to grill steaks for dinner, which I just thought was a fun little detail. Yes. <laughs> story. <laughs> he, w- he specifically was going to grill the steaks. And now I want a steak. So several witnesses said that they saw Hoffa in the parking lot, standing by his car, and kind of like pacing around the parking lot, and including two witnesses who saw him, recognized him, and like stopped to say hi. So at 7 a.m. the next day, his wife, Josephine, called her son and daughter to say that Jimmy had never come home, and he was never seen again. And thus began the investigation into the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. Her son and her son and daughter are like grown and out of the house, I guess. If she's calling, or yeah, if, if she's curious. calling them, yeah, yeah, okay. I would assume. they might he, not even be relevant. Was, <laughs> uh, his son was born in 1941, so he would have been in his 30s. By okay, now. got it. Or by then, rather. Now he's I don't know 80. I want to start by saying that in the Wikipedia article about Jimmy Hoffa's disappearance. Sort of the first thing that they talk about <laughs> is that when Josephine called her daughter, Jimmy Hoffa's daughter said that she had had a vision of Hoffa where she was sure he was dead. And she saw, like, she, like, had this vision where he was, like, slumped over the wheel of his car and she knew he was dead. Um, is, is their daughter Sylvia Brown? Their daughter is actually Miss Cleo. <laughs> But what's weird about this, the kind of creepy part is that she it, she described to her mom, him, and described the clothes that she saw him wearing in the vision, and they were the clothes that he was wearing when he disappeared. That so that's kind of weird. weird. It's really weird that the reaction of a daughter that her father is dead is, oh, I saw this in a dream. Not right. like, oh my, oh my god. god, my yeah. dad, I don't know. But Maybe she I'm was sure there like was freaking a, out. And, yeah, but yeah. that is very strange. I, 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 wow, what was that? I kind of believe in that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, this like I, weird, yeah. I don't know how that kind of thing happens or whatever, but I kind of believe that that is accurate sometimes. What were you telling me about shadow people? Yeah. <laughs> that's a real thing? Yes, that's or, a real There's phenomenon. a lot of people who talk about shadow people. Yes, there's a real phenomenon about this shadow people thing. Great. Could be a lot of different things, but I'm telling you, it's, it's out there. It's one of them. Okay. Get on YouTube. <laughs> So in the parking lot of this restaurant and hardware store, they found Hoffa's car, and it was unlocked, but inside was no sign of Hoffa, and there was no indication of what had happened. Hmm. So the Hoffa family, while investigations are happening, they offer a $200,000 reward for any information about his disappearance. The primary piece of physical evidence in this case happens to be a 1975 Maroon Mercury Marquis, which is this, like, it's beautiful, I think it's this huge, huge, like town car, boat sized car. Mm-hmm. I feel like you can just picture it. I'm picturing like a, like a nicer like Lincoln a, town car. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So the car that people had seen at the parking lot or whatever was identified as uh, belonging to uh, Tony Giacolone's son, Joseph. Mm. O- on August 21st, Police dogs uh, in identified Hoffa's scent inside of the car. But, you know, just, you know, it, that's easy to be explained away. Like, he rode in my car periodically, blah, blah, blah. Like, there was nothing to say it placed him in his car during or after his disappearance. So it kind of gave some indication, but didn't really lead them to anything conclusive. Yeah. 
And during the investigation, Gia Colone and Provenzano denied that they had ever had a meeting with Hoffa. They were like, no, we were not supposed to meet at this restaurant. But an evident, a piece of evidence that I specifically left out earlier in the story is that in Hoffa's office calendar was a note like for on the day of his disappearance that said TG, which are the, the initials of Tony Giacolone, 2 p.m. Red Fox. Mm. Wasn't there something like that in the episode too? Was there? Because I know that you know I can t- I can see the parallel to the episode now. Yeah, obviously. The, oh yeah, the union 100%. president being missing and stuff. But yeah, in the episode, it's sort of like an afterthought. Um, yeah, I don't. Rem- I don't know. But if I, I feel like that. it wasn't necessarily to find him. But there was a a part of the episode where they were trying to find evidence. They're trying to find evidence, and I feel like they found a piece of paper hmm. that was like in someone's um, car or something that had like oh, a last name on it familiar. and a time or something. Mm, Okay. Mm. So despite this evidence and the fact that the FBI and other police bodies were heavily surveilling people that they thought might know anything and they were like bugging people and all of that, they, they were not able to get any members of the mafia to talk about Hoffa's disappearance, even in private. Like, so... The, the bugs and the surveillance didn't reveal much of anything to them. Of course. I mean, this is mafia-type crimes. You know, oh, 100%. They, they know yeah. what they're doing. They know they're being right. bugged. They know they're being listened to and watched. They know how to, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like yes. that is at least, you know, from a, in layman's view, it's not surprising that, like, these types no. of tactics don't work. Yeah, the, the omerta, the code of, of uh, what did I say? Honor. Is, is also a code of silence. And so it makes sense that they weren't able to kind of pick up on them talking about things. Yeah. Even though in Law & Order, I think that I'm pretty sure that's how they kind of found that last stand-up scene at the, at the restaurant was wiretapping, wasn't it? I think that was like, I think the wiretapping enabled them to get a search warrant of some type. Like they listened to the uh, wiretap okay. enough until they heard that guy's name, that supposed hitman's name. Oh, yeah, And yeah, then yeah, once yeah. they okay. had his name and his voice... From the wiretap, that's how they got, like, the warrant to go and do whatever they did. So on December 4th of 1975, so this is now about six months after he disappeared, federal investigators produced a witness who had identified three men that he claimed to have seen abduct and murder Jimmy Hoffa. Those three men were, here we go. Salvatore? That's your dad's name, right? Yes, and my grandfather's name. (laughs) Oh my God. Okay. That is a phenomenal name. I want to see more Salvatores in the world. Amen. Um, Salvatore and Gabriel. Okay, help me out here. Okay. B-R-I-G-U-G-L-I-O. I I would say Berguglio. Berguglio? Yeah. Okay. So the three men that this witness supposedly identified were Salvatore and Gabriel Brigiuglio and Thomas Andriata and all of three of those men were close associates and uh, rumored kind of henchmen I guess of Provenzano so this witness alleges that three henchmen who and I mean I'm using the word henchmen I did not read that anywhere but associates of Provenzano he says he witnessed them abduct Hoffa and I don't I don't know if he said he also saw them murder him, but he said that these associates of Provenzano at least abducted Hoffa. But it didn't lead them anywhere. And after years of investigation, law enforcement agencies have still not reached a conclusion of what happened to Jimmy Hoffa and who was involved. And so on July 30th of 1982, he was declared legally dead. Hmm. In 19, But the story doesn't end there. I was going to say, I In didn't ni- know he was declared dead. <laughs> yeah. In 1989, Kenneth Walton, who was the agent in charge of the FBI's Detroit office, who was really heavily involved in the case, he said that he was confident that he knew what had happened to Jimmy Hoffa and who was involved. But he said that it would never be prosecuted because the FBI would have to divulge informants and confidential sources and that that would put people's lives at risk. And so I don't know if I fully buy that, because I feel like there's a lot of things that go to trial where there's confidential informants, but supposedly that's this Kenneth Walton FBI agent's read on why it was never going to be prosecuted. So he was like, case is dead in the water in 1989. Mm-hmm. Okay. But, th- but it doesn't end there. <laughs> so, this is my subject, this is my area where I that I called claims and development. And it sort of 
it's all things that people like think or saw or heard or whatever after his disappearance, after he was declared legally dead. So these are sort of the the theories and and the developments after that. Okay. And again, I didn't do these sequentially. They're all just sort of like different pieces of, of the story. So in 2011, FBI matched hair taken from Hoffa's hairbrush with hair in the maroon car owned by Joseph Giacalone. But again, that evidence doesn't prove that he was in the car the day of the disappearance, that uh, Joseph Giacalone was involved in his disappearance, just that at some point in time, he was in that car. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's... So again, you know. it, yeah, you've been in my car. You could probably find your hair in my car Correct. if you tried really hard. I, sh- I probably wouldn't take that long. <laughs> <laughs> In 2004, there was a book titled I Heard You Paint Houses about a professional killer named Frank Sheeran, like Ed Sheeran, Hmm. maybe not as good of a singer, who knows? (laughs) The author of that book, whose name is Charles Brandt, claims that Sheeran had confessed to assassinating Hoffa. Hmm. And according to the book, Sheeran claims that O'Brien, a a man named O'Brien, and a fellow monster, (laughs) (laughs) autocorrect got me there mobster, a fellow mobster named Sal... Oh, Salvatore Bergoglio. Uh-huh. Okay, back up. Ed Sheeran... Not Ed Sheeran. Can you imagine? Ed Sheeran is this uh, this hitman. Okay, Frank Sheeran claims that a another man named O'Brien drove him, uh, Frank Sheeran, Jimmy Hoffa, and fellow mobster Sal Bergoglio to a house in Detroit where Sheeran claims that he shot Hoffa twice in the back of the head. And although there were bloodstains found in that house when they investigated, uh, where where Sheeran claimed that the murder happened, there was no evidence that, or, or there was no DNA match to Hoffa's DNA. So well, how long though after, what's the word I'm like, alleged crime? Well, this was that... 2004. Right. <laughs> so like, what kind of evidence can they still get from that house? Oh, so they did find blood. They found like blood, but yeah, it didn't but match Hoffa. I mean, how, what were they hoping? I don't know. I just think it would be very Honestly, unlikely. Like that could still be true. I mean, I mean, it, if you how many sent years later? in, if you sent in Grievy and the other guy mm. with a pair of salad tongs, they could turn up something on Jimmy Hoffa. I have faith in their detective work. They'd walk in and be like, hey, this place looks like uh, like a dump. And then uh, whatever his name is. Um, Logan. Big. Logan. Logan. Thank you. <laughs> he would make some sexist comment and they'd laugh about it. Yeah. They'd talk about like some <gasps> some girl having big uh, bazongas. Big bazongas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Sheeran's claims are debated. People don't, a lot of people don't think it's correct. And one of the main reasons people think that Sheeran's story is bullshit is because Sheeran is Irish American and the uh, supposedly the Italian mafia is very very tight and they would never trust an Irish American hitman to uh, do contract killing for them. I don't know whether that's true or not, but I just think that's kind of interesting. That sounds probably correct. Right? Yeah. I mean, you, you in order to hire somebody to kill somebody, you probably have to have a pretty deep connection to them. I would guess. Yeah. Unless you're an idiot going on the dark web. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And Irish, like, I should, I'm Irish and Italian. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that was like the two biggest, like. Was there like a rivalry or kind of? Well, not necessarily. There was like, there was definitely a separation, especially in New okay. York City between Irish immigrants and Italian immigrants. Sure. I think early on because Irish immigrants were looked at, I think, po- way more poorly. Than Italian mm, immigrants, okay. if I'm not mistaken, I think they were like looked at as like I don't want to I don't want to say anything. They were looked at as like more like mm. poor or um, oh yeah yeah okay you know they were looked down squalor on. yeah like yeah yeah yeah. So I I would find it hard to believe that you know a huge connection of Italian mobsters would be you know outsourcing <laughs> exactly yeah yeah yeah. You would think that if it was a large like organized crime family, they would sort of have it in the bag. I'm sure they have a guy. <laughs> They they know a guy. (laughs) They know a guy. Okay. So you might recognize uh, Frank Sheeran's story a little bit if you're a movie watcher, because in 2019, uh, it was adapted to a film called The... The Irishman. Yeah, it came out last year. I have no idea if it's good. But here's the thing that made me laugh about it. In that movie is, it was made by Martin Scorsese. 
and it stars Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Joe Pesci, Ray Romano, Bobby Cannavale. So it's like they literally found every Italian actor and they were like, get in this movie. <laughs> get in this movie. In this movie. <laughs> <sighs> That's what their agents were sent, just an email that said, get in this movie. Get in this movie. <laughs> get in the car. <laughs> In 2006, a book titled The Iceman, Confessions of a Mafia Contract Killer, hitman Richard Kuklinski claims that he knows that Hoffa's body was buried in a 50-gallon drum, uh, sorry, was burned in a 50-gallon drum, which was then welded shut and buried in a junkyard. He claims that that an accomplice uh, started talking to authorities, and so the drum was dug up from the junkyard that it was supposedly in and compacted and then shipped to Japan as scrap metal. But these claims are mostly dismissed by those knowledgeable of the case again. And that was the Iceman, right? Yes. And I think he... I'm sure this will be corrected. I'm sure he'll be covered at some point down the line because he's the only real mobster that I know about. Um, Is Richard Kuklinski? Well, I know the Iceman because I think it was in my area. Oh. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I've heard of the Iceman growing up. Um, I've heard stories about him growing up and I watched like a thing about him specifically when I was younger because I was like, oh my God, that's New Jersey. Um, But (laughs) I think he is the kind of guy who's claimed he's done more than he... You know then I mean? he has. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I like, think that's also probably <laughs> put some doubt on his story. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Plus, there's like nothing to go on. Like when he's like, man, it's been dug up and shipped to Japan. It's like, well, we can't act on any of that. So what? The, why are you wasting my time? Yeah, it feels like machismo. Like I did that too, you know? Exactly. Right. Like, because he's, how can yeah. you, if you're a hitman, you know, getting cred for killing Jimmy Hoffa is probably big. I'm sure. <laughs> so. It's a good mark on your you're resume. Like, like when someone yeah, sees exactly. that on the resume, they're like, okay, uh, we're, you know, he, you know, he's got a criminal record. He's, you know, not maybe, but I mean, oh, Hoffa, Hoffa. That's, oh. you know, kind of what? top of the list now. <laughs> okay. In a 2003 episode of Mythbusters titled The Hunt for Hoffa, they investigated the conspiracy theory that Hoffa was buried underneath Giant Stadium. Uh, but scans, scans, scans of ground penetrating radar found no evidence of human remains underneath giant stadium why would you go to giant like the i hate claims of all places i know so stupid in 2006 the fbi released the 1976 fbi report on the disappearance of jimmy hoffa called the hoffex memo h-o-f-f-e-x which is a, a, a portmanteau of hoffa extortion okay And it's a 56-page summary of their kind of key findings and their, I think, suspicions of who was involved in Hoffa's disappearance. And uh, I guess um, the formation of this report was the result of hundreds of FBI agents who came together in 1976 to compile their official analysis. And you can go and find the Hoffex report. I went and kind of like scanned it. But the thing is, it was written in 1976 on a typewriter and like scanned I don't know, 40 years later. And so it's like barely legible at this point. It's like scanned in, in the way that like, uh, the older generation like scans photos for Facebook. Yes. Yes. (laughs) So it's like a big white page within the upper left-hand corner and upside down photograph. (laughs) Correct. That's exactly exact. I want you to go look at it now because that's exactly what it's like. I got to check it out. (laughs) So the the Hoffex was report was released uh, via the Detroit Free Press. So although not claiming conclusively to establish the specific of, specifics of his disappearance, the memo uh, records the belief that Hoffa was murdered at the behest of organized crime figures, which seems pretty obvious at this point, mm-hmm. and regarded his efforts, uh, or sorry, those those folks who killed him or arranged for his murder regarded his efforts to regain power in union organizing as a threat to their control over the union's pension fund and their their own kind of motives, right? Mm -hmm. So whether they just, it was competition or they felt that he was a threat to their organization because of how, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Involved? Intertwined? No, the word where he's really visible. Oh, that works. Oh, visible. Because he's, so whether it was competition or they just thought he was too visible to be involved, the theory, the prevailing theory is that he was killed by members of the mafia uh, to kind of protect themselves and keep their control over 
the uh, union resources. Like he was too much of a liability. Thank you. Yes, exactly. Okay. So here's another Italian name, I think. James Buccellato. B-U-C-C-E-L-L-A-T-O. Buccellato. Buccellato. Okay. Who is a professor of criminology and criminal justice at Northern Arizona University. Uh, In 2017, he suggested that Hoffa was likely murdered a mile away from the restaurant um, at the house of Carlo... Carlo Licata, who was the son of mobster Nick Licata. And they, those, again, he bases this off of his analysis of the case. And digs are still periodically conducted in the Detroit area based on various leads on the search for Hoffa's body. But a common theory among various experts with the case is that his body was cremated. And so there's not really much to find. I would imagine that if Jimmy Hoffa's if he was murdered, which I'm sure he was, I would imagine his remains are, are very, 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 very long gone by now. Well, yeah. Very and also gone. now he'd, he'd be dead at this point. Well, for sure. <laughs> he was for born sure. 107 years ago. <laughs> so I just feel like I don't know if there's any, I think it's, if anybody is going to find any sort of evidence of like what actually happened to him, it's not going to be remains. I think it's going to be someone might still no. have like a trophy or something. Maybe. Oh, maybe. like his watch or something. Yeah, yeah, maybe whatever mob family allegedly is responsible for it has like something of his as like an an artifact. Like, yeah, we are the family that took care of Hoffa type thing. You know, exactly. That's yeah. their only shot. Just so you know, so- cops, I'm telling you, <laughs> that's your only shot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so one one of kind of the the most well-accepted FBI theories about Hoffa's disappearance was that he was abducted from that parking lot, put in the trunk of the the Gia Colone car, and then taken to a place called Central Sanitation, which was a mafia-operated waste disposal facility in a kind of remote industrial area. And investigators speculated that at that waste disposal facility, they like activated loud machinery to cover up the sounds of the gunshots of killing Hoffa, and then his body was dumped into a high-intensity incinerator uh, to cremate his remains. And so the the kind of problem with that is, you know, there's no body, no evidence, so they can't really investigate that. And Central Sanitation actually burned to the ground, coincidentally, around the time that the FBI agents began snooping around mm. as part of the Hoffa investigation. I was going to say that sounds like the most likely one so far, and that, I mean, right, right there. Exactly, Yeah. The You know what's really interesting to me about all of this? So that's the end of my information about Hoffa's disappearance. But what I'm really surprised by in all of this, and maybe this was something that people talked about more at the beginning when it was still, like, questionable if he was still alive. Nobody talks about this as though he fled his life. You know, like, there's no witness protection claims. There's no new identity claims. That is interesting, the uh, witness right, protection I, angle. I never, uh, that is a, that's a good angle, I think. I mean, hey, <laughs> <laughs> FBI, feel free to pay me a bunch of money and I'll just come up with wild harebrained theories for you about these mysterious disappearances. Well, I mean, I imagine if he's in witness protection, the FBI knows. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> But I just thought it was interesting that nobody, like nothing I read really talked about that, even though it seems, you know, they're they're investigating all these theories like he's buried beneath giant stadium. Right. And yet I didn't read anything about like maybe he's still alive somewhere, which I thought was really interesting. And I feel like even though he disappeared just a couple years before I was born, I feel like, you know, the investigation into his disappearance was sort of still going on when I was a kid. And I feel like I have enough, like, vague memories of it that I think people sort of, like, floated those theories, but I didn't read about that anywhere. So maybe it was just, like, considered too far-fetched or something. I don't know. I think it's, like, with mafia crime, everyone always is, like, we, everyone has to say, like, oh, there's a possibility of this and a possibility of that and da-da-da-da. But I think most people, when it's, like, clearly linked to the mafia mobs and all that, they're like, okay, they're, they're gone. They're gone or they're yeah, being yeah. held and tortured. And if they're if if they're not if there's, there's no ransom or anything like that, they're they're gone. And so like sure yeah. they can be like, Yeah, maybe he escaped, but I think everyone's like, Okay, let's just find his body. The only thing I know about Jimmy Hoffa is like all cartoons and stuff growing up, like Tiny Toons and stuff oh. would always reference Jimmy Hoffa's grave. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's a good point. That's the only reason I know anything about him. Listen, here's the thing. If the FBI had just gone to that graveyard in the episode of Law and Order that looked like the set of Pirates of the Caribbean <laughs> where there was just skeletons everywhere, I think they would have found him. It would have been way better. They should have just gone across the river to New Jersey, found that little <laughs> pile of skeletons. Exactly. Oh, uh, so that's the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa, which partially inspired the episode of Law and Order, or rather the two-part episode, Torrance of Greed, parts one and two. That was great. I feel like I uh, I learned something beyond just a, a Law and Order or true crime thing, because I feel like I never knew anything about Jimmy Hoffa, and it's a very often referenced thing in media. So yes. that was yeah. great. Yeah. I feel like, you know what I think I... I think this is how my brain remembers Jimmy Hoffa is there were a lot of claims. Like, I feel like I have seen a cartoon of Sasquatch, Elvis, and um, Jimmy Hoffa, like playing cards or something yeah. like that, I think was in an episode of like Looney Tunes or something. 100%. Like the, these, you know, mysterious, are they still alive? Are they not? Are they real things uh kind of all got mashed together in my brain yeah he's always like a a character um you wanted me to remind you just tell me something about his son oh yeah so what do you think his son is up to okay just a guess his son would be what in his like 50s now 40s uh he's currently 79 oh my god i'm so bad with numbers okay (laughs) 79 political he's in politics he is currently president of the teamsters Uh, of course Okay. Which, what? Like, I just, again, the fact that there's this grand conspiracy to keep Jimmy Hoffa away from the presidency of the Teamsters, but then his son becomes president of the Teamsters is bizarre to me. Like, I just think that's so strange. That is really strange. Or that he would want to pursue it. Like, wouldn't you, if your father had vanished as part of pursuing this career, wouldn't you go like, I'm going to open a a coffee uh, shop? color me mine pottery <laughs> painting studio like i'm get the right. last thing i'm gonna do is get involved in union organizing maybe he didn't have a choice maybe it's something like because he's maybe he knew more than you know he's supposed to maybe just mm. being his son being around that kind of thing maybe the whole family really knows exactly what happened to jimmy hoffa like right off the bat mm-hmm. and maybe it's like listen Interesting. you're in this now you're in this and you, guess what you, you we're keeping you close and you're gonna be the new figurehead and you're gonna keep everyone keep the heat off of us if jimmy hoppa's son is back in the teamsters union you know that just shows hmm. that there's no link to anything uh shady why would he be here? interesting i wonder interesting hey if you've got some wild conspiracy <laughs> theories about jimmy hoffa you are welcome to email us at rippedheadlines at gmail.com Find us on Instagram and Twitter at Ripped Headlines. And rate, review, and subscribe because that's how we get found by other people. So take 10 seconds out of your day to rate us and write a quick review about how much you love us. And that would help us out a lot. Big time. Thank you so much for listening. And we will see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye.